Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Hoover Senior Fellow Jack Goldsmith interviews Jamil Jaffer about his new book, The Drone Memos, Targeted Killing, Secrecy, and the Law. It was recorded on January 9th, 2017. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming tonight. My guest tonight is Jamil Jaffer, who needs no introduction. He is the author and editor of a new book called The Drone Memos, Targeted Killing, Secrecy, and the Law. The book, uh, uh, much of the book contains the fruits uh, of uh, that, um, the, 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 the legal memoranda that were the fruits of, the main fruits of Jamil's efforts to uh, bring more transparency to the Obama administration's drone program. He did this while he was uh, he he uh, was involved in litigation involving uh, these memos uh, and in other activities. While he was the deputy legal director and person in charge of the National Security Project at the ACLU, he's currently the first director of the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. He started out his career just after 2001 as a line attorney, or I'm not sure what to call it, at the ACLU, and. His first transparency initiative, I'm going to let him explain this, was during the Bush administration when uh, he used FOIA very aggressively and very imaginatively to, um, and really in some path-breaking litigation, to um, get access to information about interrogation and related activities uh, during the Bush administration. So before we get to the meat of this book and I should have said that the book starts off with a 55 or so page essay by Jamil that is a must read and it's basically a pretty uh, fundamental critique of the Obama administration's drone policies, building on the memos and arguing with them and critiquing them um, from a rule of law perspective. And that's what most of what we're going to talk about tonight. But could you just start off by telling us how this all began in the Bush administration how you got into the business of FOIA and other related litigation against the government, what you thought you were doing then, how you came to do it. Just take us through the Bush administration until we get to the, to the contents of this book. Okay. Uh, well, so first, thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me to do this. Uh, thanks to the Hoover Institution for, for sponsoring it. Um, I don't get very many invitations to speak at the Hoover Institution, so I was happy to get this one. You're always uh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, we, we did a lot of, uh, I, I was, a, as you said, a line attorney in the National Security Project. Um, I started at the ACLU in, in 2002. Even before that, I was doing pro bono work for, for the ACLU in the, in the weeks and months after 9-11. Um, and then this national security program at the ACLU, which had existed until 1990 and then had been shut down because everybody thought it was the sort of the end of history, right? And and uh, so it was resurrected after after 9/11, and I started working in that uh, in that group, which became formalized later on as the National Security Project. And we worked on issues ranging from government surveillance to uh, ideological exclusion, the exclusion of foreign scholars because of their political views. Uh, we worked on issues relating to immigration and national security, and then on issues relating to detention and interrogation. And um, a lot of my energy was spent during the Bush administration on on interrogation policy, uh, on trying to compel the government to be more forthcoming about its interrogation policies, about its detention policies, 
Um, and we had some degree of success in, in forcing the government to uh, disclose um, what turned out to be evidence of, of the torture of prisoners at Guantanamo and in CIA black sites. Um, uh, and then when the Obama administration uh, took office, um, President Obama now famously disclosed the, the, the remaining documents that we had been litigating for, the OLC memos that had been the foundation for the CIA's um, uh, interrogation. Did you program. think you're out of business at that point? Well, y you know, um, yes, sort of. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I had, I guess, naively sort of very high hopes for, for the Obama administration and on, on human rights and national security issues. And it was clear that we would have some sort of carryover litigation, you know, which was sort of clean up litigation from what had gone on the previous eight years. Uh, but, you know, for, from, from my perspective, the first few months of the Obama administration were really heady, you know, heady times because the, the, the torture memos were, were disclosed. Um, you know, as everybody knows, one of President Obama's first acts was to sort of formally disavow torture. Uh, he reversed the, the, the transparency presumption or the secrecy presumption that had prevailed under the Freedom of Information Act, and we thought, well, now it'll be a little bit easier to get information out of the government. Um, he committed to close Guantanamo, and, uh, you know, some of the cases I've been litigating got settled in the first few months after, um, after President Obama took office, the, the ideological exclusion cases, so I've been litigating these two cases on behalf of well, our, our clients were American organizations, but the cases related to foreign scholars who had been excluded from, from the United States. And both of those cases were settled, and uh, the Obama administration, it was actually the State Department uh, under Secretary, of Clinton, Secretary Clinton, uh, agreed to allow those foreign scholars to come back into the United States. So there, there were a bunch of, from our perspective, very positive developments in the first few months. But, but then, um, you know, for, for reasons that many people have, you know, have, have discussed and will endlessly discuss, uh, the Obama administration, um, you know, took a turn in, in probably six months into the, the, the administration and generated a lot of issues that we ended up. So, so you're talking about, to make sure I understand, the ramp up of the drone program, which had, oh. of, of the use of um, unmanned aerial vehicles to target surveil and and engage in uh, lethal force this program this technique began to be used under the Bush administration but it ramped up significantly under the mm -hmm. Obama administration um, so tell so what was your reaction when that happened I mean, how did you yeah. how did you come to litigate these these memos and force these documents as well as the just as you'd done the interrogation documents out of the government why did you do it what was the concern um, well, well, I guess there were sort of parallel concerns. One, one was about transparency. So there were uh, you know, news articles uh, in, in 2009, 2010 about the ramp up of this, uh, of this program. We were interested to know what the scope of uh, the program was. Who were we targeting? Uh, what were the results of these? What were the results of these strikes? What, what did the process look like? Who was making the decisions? Um, so that was a kind of a transparency concern, which sort of matched the transparency concerns that we had raised under the Bush administration with respect to other other authorities, other programs. Um, and then, you know, right at the end of 2009, the beginning of 2010, um, 
there were news reports that the administration was, the government was going to target this American citizen. And we, um, <coughs> Anwar al yeah, who, who was an American citizen who was in Yemen. And there were these news stories in, in December 2009 and early in, in 2010 indicating that the CIA and, uh, uh, and JSOC special forces were, were targeting this American citizen. Uh, in other words, intended to kill this, this, this American citizen. And, uh, you know, th this was, the, the proposal was essentially to use um, force without, lethal force without prior judicial uh, review. And, you know, many Americans, I say this in my introduction to the book, you know, many Americans were, uh, in my view, uh, properly outraged when President Bush had uh, proposed extrajudicial <coughs> detention. And, Many of us at the ACLU felt that people ought to be outraged at the idea of extrajudicial um, killing, uh, you know, by the Obama administration. And you know, there are many differences between detention and killing, but but essentially, this was a it was an awesome use of power by the government, and we thought that it ought to be subject to constitutional limits. It was subject to constitutional limits. In fact, it's quite different. One results in detention <laughs> and potential release. The other yeah. one results yeah. in and there's, death there's, and collateral damage. And there's no, there's no, there's no appeal from a from a drone strike. No right? habeas you, corpus. Yeah, no habeas. Right. So, um, you know, we sent uh, my boss, Anthony Romero, sent a letter to President Obama uh, in April of 2010, uh, expressing. Uh, you know, some degree of concern about this, uh, this, this proposed targeting of an American citizen. And at that point, we had very little information about why Alaliki was being targeted, uh, what process had taken place within the executive branch, what process the administration was proposing to, um, uh, to comply with or, or, or co proposing to, to um, uh, you know, what kind of judicial process it had in mind uh, for these kinds of killings. And, and so part of the point of that letter was just to suggest to the administration it should be a little bit more forthcoming about its, uh, about its policies. So you ultimately brought a lawsuit and um, yeah, maybe talk about the client and then we'll get into the merits of, of the lawsuit. Sure, yeah. So, so in, um, uh, in May of 2010, um, one of my colleagues, Ben Weisner, and I went to Yemen to meet with Nasser al-Alaki, who's the father of Anwar al-Alaki, um, the guy who, whom the, the government was intending to kill. And uh, we met with him in Sana'a, and he, he, he's a very interesting guy. He spent a lot of time in the United States. He um, had done his PhD here, had taught um, uh, economics here in the, in the U.S., and then had gone back to Yemen, where he became the president of Sana'a, the University of Sana'a, uh, and the Minister of Agriculture in, in Yemen, uh, had very close, many close ties to the United States, but he had this son who had um, you know, become public enemy number one. Um, and, uh, you know, so he was very sort of conflicted about this, you know, situation, though obviously his loyalty was to his son. And, um, and he said to us, you know, can it possibly be right that the government can target my son like this without ever presenting any evidence to anyone or even formally saying what he's accused of? Because at that time, all we had were these leaks to the media. Um, and we agreed with him. We said, you know, it doesn't seem right to us either. And when we got back to the U.S., we put together this lawsuit with the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, to... to, to um, 
essentially asked the courts to weigh in on the scope of the government's authority to use lethal force against an American citizen. We filed that suit in the summer of uh, in the summer of 2010. So you yeah. so you lost that suit at the district court level on, as I recall, standing grounds. The court held that. Yeah, yeah. that's actually a kind of all-purpose statement for lawsuits that I've right. brought. Yeah. No, no, yeah. I'm not finished. <laughs> standing or political question. Right. Okay. Right. Sometimes state secrets too. Right. Um, so you lost that lawsuit, and um, he was eventually targeted and killed. And as yeah. you point out, uh, I think a month or a week later, his son was killed as collateral damage in a strike. Yeah. Uh, and then you brought another lawsuit. I just want to get that lawsuit out, and then we'll talk about the Well, sentence. so the collateral damage, you, you know, his son was killed in a strike, yes. The government has never explained what that strike uh, was meant to do, Fair who point. they were targeting. Fair point. There have been leaks to the media suggesting that somebody else was targeted. But this 16-year-old American kid was killed in a separate strike, uh, and the government has never uh, provided an on-the-record account for, for, for that strike. And, but then you brought another case that you also yeah. lost, I think, on... Yes, we also lost. Fight. We also lost, yeah. But so one of the themes I want yeah. to get to is you lost a lot of cases, but you won a lot, too. But why don't you tell us what you lost, then I'll talk about what sure. you Sure, yeah. So, so, uh, so, again, the first suit was... The, the point of that suit was try to, to try to get the courts to say what the law was, right? Uh, the government is claiming this authority. The government is saying, uh, we are going to kill this American citizen uh, because he presents um, some kind of... Uh, you know, unspecified threat to the to the United States, and we said to the court, uh, you know, there are limits to the government's authority to use lethal force, especially against its own citizens, uh, and the court has a role in articulating what those limits are. Uh, and the court essentially said no. Uh, uh, the court said uh, this question of who constitutes a legitimate target for the use of lethal force in uh, in armed conflict is a is a question committed to the political branches. Um, uh, and not one on which the courts have, uh, you know, any any role role to play. So that was the first that was the first case. Then, you know, as Jack says, um, Anwar al Aliki was killed in a in a strike in September of, of 2010. His son was killed in a, a separate strike a month later in October of 2010. We filed another suit. Um, uh, this one, in effort to uh, compel the government to present evidence to the court to justify the actions it had already carried out. Um, and the argument we made to the court was, uh, all right, we, we, we understand that, that the courts have accepted that the government can carry out these kinds of actions without first presenting evidence to a court. But we think it ought to be required to present evidence to the court after the fact, uh, in the same way that if police use lethal force uh, you know, here on the streets of, uh, of Washington, D.C., um, uh, after the fact, they can be brought to court and forced to um, defend uh, their use of their use of lethal force. Uh, once again, uh, we lost uh, this time on the grounds that uh, remedies that that are available in other contexts, including the context I just described, uh, aren't available in the context of national security. It's a spe uh, Bivens special factors is the so so, you, so that's going to emphasize for those who aren't experts that these are really. Suing the president in wartime and, and getting relief has rarely, if ever, been done in American history. So these were, I think it's fair to say, long shot cases. It was a novel case also. Um, and the grounds on which you lost were typically the grounds on which litigants lose 
standing and political question doctrine when they bring lawsuits against the president challenging his wartime authority. Yeah, I, I guess I would force. say, I, I guess I would say, no, no, I, I think you're right, but but the power is also a novel power, right? That This idea that the government is going to deliberately target one of its own citizens, and you say, you know, in wartime, well, I'm sure we're going to get to that. Uh, remember, he was not on an actual battlefield. He was in Yemen, right, which even the government didn't characterize as an actual battlefield. So yes, the law, the lawsuits were novel. So was so was yep. the power. So the law, yeah. that, that's a fair point. Um, the law, the lawsuits were novel, and the assertion of power, at least in this explicit way, American citizens yep. have been killed in wartime, mm -hmm. in the Civil War, and World War II, and the like, but never in a sense targeted like this. Never outside the traditional battlefield. A topic that we'll get back to in a second. Just there was another line of litigation in addition to these lawsuits challenging the legal authority of the war. These were freedom of information, lawsuits seeking documents related to this program, not unlike the kind of litigation you did under the Bush administration. There, I think it's fair to say you had middling success. Is that about the right way yeah. to put it? You won a big case in the Second Circuit. Ultimately, the opinion that supported um, the drone strike against al-Awlaki was, was revealed in connection with the judge being confirmed. Um, so I think if you just look at the litigation, you would say you suffered a lot of losses and had a few small victories. And yet, I want to suggest that as soon as the litigation began, the government started revealing more information. They started giving speeches on the topic. They started revealing information voluntarily, even though they resisted you in court. And ultimately, even though you sort of tell a story about how the courts didn't rule the right way, you got all these documents. So it seems to me like it was a pretty good success just from the perspective of transparency. Would you agree with that? No. Why not? Um, <laughs> no. I mean, I do think we had some, you know, we, we had some <coughs> success. You're right that the memo was, uh, this is a July 2010 Office of Legal Counsel memo, which is you know, essentially the Justice Department's green light for the killing of Anwar al-Awlaki. Um, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a formal sense, that memo was released in response to our litigation. Also released in response to our litigation was the Presidential Policy Guidance, which is this document that the Obama administration put in place uh, in May of 2013 to, um, uh, to create, to, 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 to regularize the, the, drone, the drone program. Um, so yes, in a sense, we had those successes, but, but it's important to realize um, uh, to, to recognize the limits of those successes, all right? So, so because, uh, because it's important for people to understand to what extent transparency relating to national security is a matter of executive grace, okay? So we have these two, in some ways, landmark legal victories that we managed to get out of the D.C. Circuit and the Second Circuit. The D.C. Circuit uh, held in, um, I think, 2013, that the CIA could no longer refuse to confirm or deny that it had documents about the drone campaign, uh, right? So for, for several years, the CIA's position had been, when we asked for information about the drone campaign, the CIA's response had been, what drone campaign, right? Um, that, uh, that was an, a response that the DC Circuit rejected in this, uh, uh, in this 2013 opinion. And from a litigator's perspective, it's a very big victory because it's very rare that, uh, it almost unheard of, that um, uh, a federal court, uh, let alone an appeals court, will overrule or second guess the executive's determination of you know, whether information is properly classified or not. And in essence, the CIA was saying uh, the mere fact that we have a drone campaign is properly classified. 
Um, so from a legal, uh, from a litigation perspective, that was a big victory. The other big victory was the Second Circuit case in which the court uh, required the Obama administration to release this July 2010 memo. Uh, and again, you know, from a litigator's perspective, a big victory because this is the memo that the government had argued was properly classified. They argued that the release of it would, would cause grave damage to national security and... A huge victory in FOIA terms. In FOIA terms, a huge victory. And, and the three-judge panel unanimously ruled that they had to release, uh, release the memo. So what's the problem? And, and Judge Cabranes, who is the chief judge of the, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court of Review, not thought of as a progressive, um, uh, was part of that panel, right? But that the memo that they released, they released on the grounds of official acknowledgement. So essentially, we had argued that the government shouldn't be able to keep this secret when it has effectively acknowledged the contents of the memo. It's effectively released the contents of the memo already through other documents and through public statements. And that was the argument that the court adopted. So when we won, we won on the grounds that the court, the court essentially said, you guys already have the information you're asking for, so there's no harm in giving you the information again, right? So, um, you know, in practical terms, the transparency victory was very limited. But let me, let me challenge that and take it to a little bit higher ground. I would say that, that um, I'll make this claim, never in the history of American warfare has any particular military technique or, or part of a campaign, A, been so legalized, heavily legalized inside the government, but also, B, I would say, given the speeches that the Obama administration gave, given the, the, the paper you referred to that they released, given these documents, given the document that they released last month, an extensive analysis of the law governing the use of force under international and domestic law, I would say that we have much more information now than we've mm -hmm. ever had about any targeting campaign, just un incomparably more, about the legal basis, about the legal process, and I would say it's a more elaborate legal basis and a more elaborate legal process, and we know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And so why isn't this a gigantic, gigantic success for transparency? Mm -hmm. Well, so, so uh, a couple things. So, so first, I think you're right. We know, we know a lot about this. It's a lot more than we have known about the use of lethal force in other conflicts. Ever. This conflict is different from those conflicts. So I, I think that the comparison... There are you analogies. Take that into we've used... We've used you know, we've used, um, 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 had missile strikes off a traditional battlefield, no legal memo for that, no, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. We've had irregular mm -hmm. forces in lots of different contexts and lots of different mm -hmm. wars. Mm -hmm. World War II, of course, was okay. Spread out okay. Every okay. All right, I, t I take your point. The, the, the um, I mean, I still think that you know you have to be careful about these comparisons because this is a different conflict, a different kind of conflict. But I agree. The, the other that's why we've got. Make. That's why we've got so much. The different conflicts in a different era, highly legalized era, which is why both the government is, has mm -hmm. has legalized this thing like crazy. It's why you've been going after them to to learn more. So why yeah. I just don't understand well, why, that, why, why that's not a, that point. Why so, not so, a victory. But, no, I, look, I, I'm proud of the work we did. I, I you know, I I, 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 I just don't want you to overstate that. Okay, it. I don't good. want you to overstate you know overstate the the. You're the never success. happy with your victories. No, I, I think it's important to, for people to realize how much of it was a matter of ex at, at the end of the day executive grace. But, but it you know? wasn't though. You for, it was political pressure in part that you brought to bear. Yes, it was executive right. grace. There was no legal rule that they did it. But the fact of the matter is, you raised the temperature significantly, okay. you hit a nerve, and they did a lot more inside as a result, and they published a lot more. 
I don't understand why this isn't a large victory for transparency in wartime. In fact, you could yeah. argue, some people say, yeah. way too much transparency that the government uh, is now you know, chilled because it's being so mm. observed, too much time spent figuring out these mm-hmm. FOIA mm-hmm. cases. But I'm not going to yeah. make that argument, but why aren't you happy with what... what with the level so, of so, so partly it's because you and I disagree about to what extent this is executive grace and to what extent it's a response to litigation. And partly it's a matter of timing because, you know, we filed this litigation in 2010. We got the memo in, what, 2015 or something, right, right, or 2014. Um, and, you know, o- often what, what happens is with this kind of secrecy is that the secrecy allows the government to create kind of facts on the ground. And then by the time the, the information gets disclosed, it's no longer realistic for anyone to sort of go back and revisit these decisions. The time for, for making that decision has passed. And the public is effectively excluded from the decision making um, and then given the information only when it's, you know, when it's too late. Okay, so let, that's why I... So let me push you on that because this is where a lot of people disagree with you. So the public is excluded from the decision making. The decisions we're talking about are these are all these decisions are made at the highest levels of government almost all of them these are decisions ultimately made by the president to use force in a war authorized by congress now you can argue about their international law issues but at least with regard except with regard to the islamic state and we could argue about that this is an authorized war and it's the president making a military decision about how to use force in a war that congress has authorized the American people have never been involved in that decision. Why should they be? Mm-hmm. What does it mean? What what kind of? How would you like them to be involved mm-hmm. in the decision? What what is? Yeah, I mean, again, what does the ideal world yeah, look like yeah. in terms of being involved in that decision publicly? So you know the standards that the Obama administration announced—they didn't actually put in place until 2013, right? And we didn't get the document until 2016, the, the presidential policy guidance, right? But you can imagine a debate in 2010 about the uh, the scope of the government's authority to use lethal force against one of its own citizens uh, and the decision making that ought to precede the use of that lethal force. You can imagine a public debate about um, uh, you know should should we should the government be required to go to a judge before should it be required to go to a judge after um, is uh, uh, can the government use force against people who are something who don't present truly imminent threats but are instead continuing in imminent threats right you can imagine that kind of debate but that debate never never took place there was a moment it's hard to believe it now in 2012 or 2013 where Congress got sort of, uh, you know, engaged in that right. set of questions. And, uh, in fact, uh, Senator Feinstein proposed at one point that she would hold hearings on um, the appropriateness of a drone court. Um, and I think Clapper said at one point that uh, he thought that uh, there were merits to the argument that there ought to be another branch involved. Um, uh, it that, never went anywhere. Do you think right? that's a good idea? No, I, I don't. I don't, but for different reasons than, than, than you. But, but. No, I, don't, I think they might be the same reasons. I think, I, th- I mean, one danger of getting courts involved is that they're going to just, they're not going to second-guess the president on the use of force in a military campaign that's been authorized by Congress, and it's just going to heighten the legitimacy of what's going on. So, yeah. that, so that's the argument for getting them involved. I think it would also be odd to interject <coughs> courts into that military decision-making, odd to put it lightly. But why don't you want that? Well, so my, my opposition isn't to getting courts involved. My opposition is to a drone court. I, I think we already have courts whose role it is to, um, uh, to, to, to check the government's use of, among other things, lethal force against its own citizens, right? 
but I think that the appropriate venue and time is um, is after the fact. And you know, the obvious response to that, well, after the fact is is too late. The person is dead, and that's you know, and that's true. But if you accept, if you begin with the assumption, which is sort of my proposition, that the government's authority to use lethal force comes into play without without prior judicial review, comes into play only when the threat is truly imminent, then by definition it's infeasible uh, to have judicial review before the use of lethal force. An imminent threat is one that by definition doesn't allow for prior judicial review. So the only possible judicial review is after the fact. And that after the fact judicial review is never going to be fully satisfying because you know, as we said earlier, you can't, you know, you can't appeal. It's just like a review of the legality of the action for wrongful damages or something exactly. like that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But more importantly, well, I don't know, more importantly, but equally important, um, it would create a rule that would um, uh, guide government conduct in the future, right? In the same way that rules established in excessive force cases uh, in the domestic context provide guidance to police. Going Frankly, forward. in the same way that the precedents in the habeas cases That's about right. the scope of the AMF have guided targeting decisions. That's right. So, what would I, I, I'm so what, tell me what this this after the fact review looks like? It's this, it's figuring out, and you would determine, in the after the fact review, it would be a super damages for wrongful death, and the plaintiffs' yeah. heirs would bring that suit. And that would force the court to judge the legality of the war, of the of the strike. That's basically. right. That's which right. Would in, which would include. Uh, adjudicating the, the the validity of the wartime authorization. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it would be a Bivens suit, right? It's it's a suit brought under the Fourth Amendment in the same way that excessive force excessive yep. force cases are, are brought brought here. Um, it would look very much like a habeas, um, it, you know, like the detention habeas cases. Don't you expect? Yeah. Okay. It would look very much like the detention habeas cases. Yeah. And I expect that the outcome would be very much like the habeas cases. Which is to say true. that the yeah. Court of Appeals ultimately would yeah. say, you know, fiddle around at the margins just to make it look like they were doing something, but in fact say, A-OK, thumbs up, mm -hmm. and then you've got mm -hmm. real legitimacy for what the president's doing. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, that's a fair characterization of what the D.C. Circuit has done with the habeas cases. If, <laughs> if, you, if you recall, the, the district courts uh, were actually um, much more... Uh, engaged or or aggressive at um, uh, at, at uh, scrutinizing the government's arguments, right? Um, uh, but yes, because of the makeup of the D.C. Circuit, if these cases were brought in the D.C. Circuit, I think that's um, so. Let me let me just let me yeah. push you a little bit on that. I don't know if it thinks the makeup of the D.C. Circuit. I mean, it is true that the history of these lawsuits has been one that which courts have been quite understandably extremely hesitant to second-guess the president in these military decisions. Even after the fact, the embarrassment to the president uh, is something that courts would mm -hmm. just bend over backwards to avoid, even more than in the habeas case, when you're just talking about the release of a detainee. Here you're talking about declaring the war illegal or the strike illegal. I think the pressure on any judge in that circumstance is going to be much more mm -hmm. to bend over backwards to support the president. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly why the courts punt these cases at the threshold issue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't understand yeah. why that wouldn't happen if, if I mean you might be right as a you know I I um, I mean you're certainly right that in national security cases generally the courts tend to be very deferential to the executive branch if you look at the FISA court right you 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 see that deference you know all over the place uh, in the habeas cases it's true that, that the government gets gets lots of deference 
I still think that at the margins, that kind of judicial review is um, is a useful thing. And there are ways for courts to actually uphold what the government has done while narrowing the authority going forward, right? Um, so even where, when a court appears to be, um, you know, in a specific case, deferring to the government's decisions, it can articulate a rule that has um, uh, a constraining effect going forward. There's another benefit, I think, to, to having um, the judiciary involved um, uh, so you know, right right now, um, the government has a choice uh, with somebody like Anwar Aliki of using lethal force and then never having to account for the use of lethal force, or possibly capturing the person and having to submit evidence to a court in a criminal trial, not just to a court, but the public too, or and see some of the yeah in a habeas proceeding, right? And you know, I don't think it takes. Um, you know, you don't have to be paranoid about abuse of government power to, to, you know, to see that the incentive structure is one in which, at the margin, the government is going to, uh, you know, lean towards um, killing even when capture is, you know, is a is a possibility because you don't have to account for your actions when you kill, where you, whereas you do when you when you capture. Um, you know, so I think that that the the the, the you know, judges, if judges could sort of move the, the, you know, move that line where the government uses lethal force rather than capture, that would be a useful thing. And the transparency that comes with judicial, with, 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 um, you know, with judicial process, I think uh, forces a kind of ownership over policy that is a very healthy thing for a democracy. I think that it forces all of us to own the policies in a way that we don't when this stuff is secret. To explain that a little bit more, what, how can judges force that? Force I just think that if we, yeah, so so right now, or this is certainly true in 2010, it's less true now, but in 2010, all this stuff was secret. All the, the strikes were, were uh, rarely acknowledged. Um, well, they were never never formally acknowledged. Uh, we never knew who they were who they were targeting. We didn't know the scope of the, you know, essentially we didn't know who was being killed and we didn't know why they were being killed, right? And I think it's very easy for, for um for us to forget about that program when uh, when the effects of the program are so distant and so um, you know, so mysterious or yeah. so shrouded in, in in secrecy, when you have judicial process, it forces a kind of society societal ownership over over the policies, uh, and I think that's a healthy thing. And I think it would have made a difference with the torture debate, especially. Um, you know, if there had been an earlier debate about this. There was so a couple of points. Mm -hmm. the, you did force the torture, that, that debate, with the torture debate. The American society was engaged by uh, bipartisan Congress, pushed back against Bush's program. That mm -hmm. program basically stopped in its tracks 2005, 2006. Yeah, four years later. Right. I agree. Yeah. I, I agree. No, mm -hmm. no, I agree. But it stopped in its tracks four years later because the American people, in large part because of what you and journalists made public, found out what was going on, they engaged in it, they didn't like what they saw, and they pushed back. That hasn't happened here. I think we did have a debate in this country, mm -hmm. in large part because of the litigation you brought, because of the drone strike against, uh, the, against the American citizen. There was a, a very robust debate in the country. The government became much more transparent, whether by grace or not. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the country reacted differently to the drone strikes, and they have taken ownership for it. There has not been, mm -hmm. to be sure, any express congressional uh, legislation on it, but mm -hmm. the issue has been fully debated in large part, I think, a success story for you, but it ended up, I think, largely mm -hmm. 
legitimating it's too strong yeah. a word, but I think it's basically we, we've had a debate and people didn't mind what they saw. I think that's you, you know, I think that there's an element of truth in that, 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 but, um, the drone program that the public has ultimately endorsed is narrower than the drone program that the <laughs> Obama administration uh, introduced in 2010. Right? It's not necessarily yeah. on the legal front, but as you point out in your yeah. essay, on yeah. the policy front yeah. for off the battlefield yeah. strikes, they narrowed yeah. it down when they, they said basically we're not going to have any civilian casualties, even though they continue to, but they certainly narrowed the criteria quite a lot. Yeah. But I don't understand why, I'm, again, I'm sorry to keep coming back to the same theme, this should be a huge success story for you, even though it didn't uh, turn out during the end the, the way you thought it should. I mean, you basically did engage the country, you engaged yeah. the government, they did narrow what they were doing, and they just didn't stop. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the courts played the role that no, they, they, they ought to have played, you know. Um, Although that litigation, when the Obama administration had to defend it, we learned a lot from that litigation. I'm quite confident that inside the government they were forced to get their act much more in order in terms of legal process mm -hmm. and legal substance as a result of that litigation. Yeah. I don't think you can, I think it's all part of the same environment and I yeah. think you were yeah. responsible for it. Well, thank you, thank you. But also <laughs> responsible, but also responsible for the legitimation because yeah. unlike in the interrogation yeah. context where the yeah. American people push back, here the American people basically said, for a variety of reasons, maybe they're not good reasons, we're okay with this. Yeah, I mean, I, so so first, you know, transparency from my perspective is not just instrumental, right? So, I, you know, I understand sometimes you're going to demand that the government make information secret, and then people are going to disagree with you about what you know what the information signifies or how it should be understood. Um, so I, I understand that, and and um, I think of the trans to the extent we were able to force transparency, I think that was a success. Whatever you know, whatever happened afterwards, um, I do think that that. You know, with with the drone, I'll tell you one one really, you know, one. So there are many. You know, we had many um, uh, many losses under my leadership at the ACLU, uh, but um, uh, and, and we didn't always appeal. You know, appeal the losses. Uh, but if there's you know, one one loss that I wish we had had the opportunity to appeal, um, it's that second Alaliki case because. Uh, I, I do think that um, the appeals court and the Supreme Court might have reacted differently than the district court did. I mean, if you look at the Hamdi case, right, and you look at um, right. uh, Scalia's, you know, dissent in the, in the uh, Hamdi case, uh, you know, it's essentially, you know, this is not the line that I would draw, but, it's, but the line that was important to him was citizenship, right? Yeah. And he, he, um, you know, he felt very strongly that, that with a U.S. citizen, the government has different... Uh, different obligations, and even with detention, he said, you know, no, you know, if you want to detain a U.S. citizen, um, you, you need ex at the very least explicit, you, you know, congressional authority, but he would have gone even further, I think, and said, you know, a criminal trial is the way you detain a U.S. citizen. Um, and I don't, you know, I am not willing to say we would have prevailed before the Supreme Court, but I do think we would have got a different hearing. I think you would have, you precisely know? because an American citizen was involved, I think, yeah. I think that's, it's, it's hard to know how that would have come out. Let's, I just want to mention a point that you and I have talked about a lot, but for the audience to understand. When you bring these cases, there, you always run, both the FOIA cases, but especially the cases sort of on the merits or on, on the, of the war, you always run the risk that you're going to lose and set a bad precedent. Mm -hmm. It's just a, I think it's just part of doing business mm -hmm. when you're in this type of litigation. Can you tell us how, I mean, how do you think about the trade-off of this is an important case to bring we have 30% chance of winning, 
Do we appeal? Do we keep the press if we lose? I mean, yeah. uh, how much do you worry about? And there must be cases that you don't bring that you think are just because mm -hmm. you just think it's going to make a bad precedent. How do mm -hmm. you think about that trade-off? I would think that's an important trade-off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it is. And, and, you know, I think whether, whether we made the right calculations, you know, history will, history will judge. Probably won't. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, it's just counterfactual. We just don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, the, there are different ways to lose cases, right? And if you lose cases at the threshold, it's a very frustrating thing to be thrown out on standing or political question uh, on the political question doctrine um, or on state secrets. Uh, but, um, you know, you don't do damage to the law on the merits. Like, uh, you know, for better and worse, um, there is no decision out there in which a court has weighed in on the lawfulness of targeting unbridled alki, right? Um, now, courts could sometimes decide things by not, not deciding things, uh, and it's... Uh, you know, we do create a precedent. You know, we do have this district court decision out there that says that this kind of question is a political question. But those kinds of decisions are often so fact-bound that um, I'm not sure how much precedential weight they actually. You know, the district court have. level, they probably don't, but they do allow the government to stand up and say, "We've got a federal court ruling yeah, saying that's right. This is our business, not the court." That's right. So that's, that, right. that's what you. That's what you lost there. That's right. Now you know the 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 truth is they were saying that before. Right? I agree. And yeah, I agree. Um, when you know when we bring these cases, we we try not to bring cases that um, you know are 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 clear losers, right? We we bring cases when we think that there's an opportunity to do some do some good, but. Um, you know, we would always take into account the public debate and the way that the case would um, inform or uh, enrich or affect the public the public debate. And sometimes an important reason to bring one of these cases was there isn't debate about something there ought to be debate about, or uh, the debate is um, you know focused on the wrong set of issues, and the case will um, you know the case will move move debate in a good way. I think you did that. Um, we're running out of time. I want to ask you a couple more questions. One of the things I was struck about in the essay, and by the way, you get two books in one because you really have all these great documents, important documents collected, and then there's this really consequential, meaty, uh, but accessible essay at the beginning that Jamil wrote. I was struck in the essay by what I think of as a paradox. On the one, of hand, on the one hand, you're saying there's no rule of law here. I'm paraphrasing. There's no rule of law in these. Uh, only barely paraphrasing. Okay, right. um, <laughs> There's no rule of law in these uh, in the drone program. On the other hand, you know these documents reveal this, as you call it, this highly bureaucratized, highly legalized internal process, where it's just been lawyered to death, and they're very long memos, and mm -hmm. the processes are very elaborate, and there are a lot of words. How, how can you explain? Yeah, 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 that seems yeah. like a paradox to me. I know. I think it is kind of a paradox. I mean, I, I, you know, this is one of the points I try to make in the introduction is that you know you you think that there's a lot of law here, but it's not really law. And um, uh, you know, a lot a lot of the the terms that the administration the administration deliberately chose terms that sounded like constraints, but then redefined those terms so that they weren't as constraining. Um, and the the operative terms are sort of cherry pick cherry pick from different legal regimes, and then 
um, you know, even to the extent that the, the the government has sort of adopted a framework, it regards that framework as a policy framework rather than a legally binding one, and even to the extent that it, it recognizes legally binding rules, it takes the position that those rules aren't enforceable in any court. So, you know, that's not to say, uh, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that this is, you know, completely lawless. I, you know, I, I don't think it's completely, lawless, completely but, lawless, but it's, uh, um, you know, the fact that it's saturated with the language of law doesn't, doesn't mean that um, the government is actually operating under a set of rules that is constraining. I'm not sure I'd agree with that. I'm not sure we have time to talk about it. Well, well you know, we'll see. Now we have this experiment, right? We have a new administration. We'll see what they do. With well, we'll world. see if they keep yeah. these. So there's a policy, very restrictive policy over a pretty forgiving and expansive legal regime, and we'll see. I agree that the legal regime itself is very flexible. Um, by the way, a couple of points. One, cherry-picking from the law. The reason they're cherry-picking from the law is what you said earlier. This is a completely novel context. So they're trying to negotiate mm -hmm. their way through three or four different legal regimes that this falls in between, and if there's inevitably in this new context going to be melding of different areas of law. I do think it's mm -hmm. restraining. There, there's some examples, but I agree with you also. It is it gives the president tons of discretion along and, and his subordinates about whom to target and when to target. I don't think that's any different it's than any prior war, no matter what the novelties are here. And in fact, it has to be the case that for these high-level detainees, including Alalaki, that for a particular strike, except maybe for the Japanese nuclear strikes at the end of World War II, or maybe some giant bombing campaigns in Germany, there just hasn't been nearly this type of deliberation at the top of the administration before mm -hmm. using force. Now, again, mm -hmm. the situation is novel, but there's there, there's well, I, more I deliberation yeah, and I, process. I, I, and, I think you're right. There's more and deliberation. And that has a bite inside the government. Inside the executive branch. Yeah. Yes. But when you're talking about depriving an American citizen of his life, you know, we have never before said executive process is sufficient. Right? This is the first time anybody has ever said it. Executive process is sufficient, right? Outside of, of, of a, a truly imminent situation by the police or something like Even that. Even there, you have process, judicial process after, after the, fact. the fact. That's true. You know, it's available after the fact. And this is, you know, this is, well, uh, we're out of time. But, no, we're not out of time. Well, you know, I was just going to say, this is one of my main complaints about the July 2010 Office of Legal Counsel memo, is that um, the, the lawyers who write that memo, greenlighting the killing of Anwar Alalaki, say, you don't have to provide judicial process before the fact. You don't have to go to a judge beforehand uh, and present your evidence. They never say, but, you know, that assumes that judicial process is available after the fact. And I don't think that you can answer the constitutional question uh, sort of in a vacuum, looking only at what's, you know, what, what's required before the fact. You have to take into account the availability or unavailability of process afterwards. Okay, last question. So you were even though you want to downplay your successes. You were hugely consequential during the Bush administration in prying out a lot of stuff in the Bush administration and, and sparking lots of debates related to interrogation and detention. Hugely consequential in pulling these documents out of the government, sparking debate, change, legitimation in my view. Now you've moved on from the ACLU. You're, you're heading up this First Amendment Center at Columbia. Can you tell us what you what you see as the big issues? I mean, if you thought that through that much, mm -hmm. but the big issues in the First Amendment area, what are the equivalents of, to the extent you can talk about it, of, of interrogation, detention, drones? What's going to be the big issues in the Trump administration? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think source protection, whistleblowers, 
Um, you know, I think that there are a bunch of issues that are free speech issues that aren't First Amendment issues. Like I'm sorry, free speech, speech yeah, issue, free yeah. speech on social media, right? So, um, uh, you know, now now a lot of the power that used to be in the hands of the government is in the hands of private actors, and this question of uh, what those private actors can and should do with that power, I think, is a hugely consequential one. Um, and then there are some issues that overlap with what I was doing at the ACLU. I think that the surveillance issues, you know, the First Amendment limits to government surveillance power. I think that's a really important set of issues and will become even more important under this administration. Um, and secrecy, you know, government secrecy around national security is um, in part a First Amendment issue. There's a First Amendment right of access to information that the Supreme Court has recognized. And I, uh, you know, I anticipate that we will, we will end up litigating some of those cases. Good luck with it. Congratulations on a great book. Thank Thanks. You, Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.